Uh, We're stepping out of our sermon series, uh, The Table of Undeserving Friends, uh, for this week because we should. It's Pentecost. It's Pentecost, people. Uh, But for many of this, we're thinking, well, what's the big deal about Pentecost? Why should we make a big deal about Pentecost? Uh, I want to reread the Daryl Johnson quote that we started our service with. Daryl, he's the uh, lead pastor down the street at First Baptist, and here's what he says. I know that the church of Jesus Christ in the West will have finally come to understand the fullness of the gospel when Pentecost is as big a celebration as Christmas and Easter. So Christmas, Easter, Pentecost. Daryl is saying it should be as big a celebration. And let's be honest, I don't think we're there yet. I don't know if you remember uh, Easter, but we had five services during the week. And then we decorated this place like crazy. It was beautiful. Thank you, Casey and the team. Uh, And and, and Pentecost, everything looks normal. You know, like it doesn't seem to have the same anticipation and buildup. But we are doing a few things differently. Uh, We've modified the service slightly, but we're Anglicans, right? So it's only slightly. Uh, You know, it's it's getting its own sermon this year. It didn't last year. And uh, even our Alpha course, the people who are going through Alpha and leading Alpha, this is actually their retreat this weekend. And they're learning about the Holy Spirit on Pentecost weekend, which is pretty cool. Um, So our hope as a community is as we grow in our understanding of our faith, as we grow in our understanding of the church calendar, that this time next year, Pentecost will be as big a celebration as Christmas and Easter, as long as your planning team doesn't forget to plan for it. So uh, here is why, though. Here's why Pentecost should be celebrated in that way. Pentecost means God now works in and through us and not solely around us. Let me say that again. Pentecost means that God works in and through us rather than solely around us. That's a big idea I want to concentrate on this morning as we look at the day of Pentecost in the scriptures. So open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Luke, the great historian of the early church, he writes this. Uh, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. As always, you know, we like to fill in the picture of what's going on Uh, the context of the passage. And it feels like this passage needs a little more context. What was going on? Well, let's fill it in. Um, In the the events, as they unfolded in history, Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he resurrected. He visited his disciples for 40 days. And then in the beginning of Acts, Luke writes that he ascended to heaven. Uh, And Luke says this. He says, Jesus ordered the disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now I get it. Uh, This seems like a lot to take in one sitting. We're talking about crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, you know, this mysterious waiting for power from on high. Like this this is a lot to talk about. Uh, what does power from on high even look like? Uh, what looked like He-Man, you know, when he receives the power sword and says, by the power of Grayskull, uh, will be the Care Bear stare, you know, like just love bursting forth through the disciples. You know, clearly you can tell what generation I grew up in. But uh, all the disciples know. They don't know what the power is going to look like. Uh, 
All they know is that they're to wait. Their world's been turned upside down. Dead stuff comes back to life. Jesus ascended into the heavens, and they're told to wait. And so they wait. They don't know what's around the corner, but they're willing to wait for it. So through thick and thin, through the betrayal and confusion that surrounded the crucifixion, through the awe and wonder of the resurrection and the ascension, they waited together. They waited on the promises of Jesus, and Jesus came through. And on the day of Pentecost, uh, a Jewish feast, uh, a sound from heaven came. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. Uh, have you ever, um, think, you know, think about the sound of the wind. Have you ever stood on like the edge of a cliff, right? And the, I'm not going to do it because there's no wind right now. But uh, the, the wind is so strong, you can just, it holds you up. And all you can hear is the wind. And you can feel its power and its strength. You know, this, this sort of mighty rushing wind fills the room that the disciples are in. And then tongues as of fire appeared. And it appears in the form of speaking in other languages. Apparently, this is the Spirit coming in power. This is unexpected. I mean, there's no precedence set for this sort of appearance of the Spirit in the Jewish Scriptures. Uh, Sure, the Spirit might give someone uh, supernatural strength, right? Samson. Or it it might endow people with uh, creative inspiration and expression like the people set apart for building the tabernacle. Or it might be uh, moments of great discernment and wisdom and guidance like Solomon. These are examples of the Spirit descending and filling people in a very specific way, but suddenly speaking in other languages. There's no precedence for this. So the context of this passage, the passage itself, if we're honest, it's it's a lot to take in. And frankly, it's moments in Scripture like this where a lot of us, we want to just check out. You know, this is why you can't buy into the Christian faith. It gets a little weird. It's a lot to take in, and and I get it. I really do. Uh, When I became a Christian, I didn't really know anything about the faith. I knew there were Anglicans and Catholics, and I figured you were born Catholic, so I must be an Anglican. Uh, That settles that. And and eventually I learned, you know, there's, there's other denominations, there's other expressions of church, and so I did what... A lot of people in this room probably have done in your life. I went church shopping. I didn't even know that was an option. And one Sunday, um, you know, I was maybe a year into my faith, and I went to this church in Kitsilano with a friend. It was a nice church. I can't remember the name. And, and they're nice people. It was a nice environment. The guy was a good speaker. But there's one point uh, in the service that just is ingrained in my mind. I can't forget it. This, this larger gentleman got to the front of the stage, and he was very kind. He said, I'm going to pray now. And And he prayed, and I assumed he was praying in Russian. I had no idea what he was saying. But then afterwards, um, he prayed in English. And as an outsider to this community, as someone who knew really nothing about Christianity, here's what I thought. That was pretty cool. I guess they have a lot of Russians in this church, and they're trying their best to help them feel comfortable in the service. That's pretty awesome. Uh, But my friend, Danique, uh, who I was with, like she, she went pale. And like her fists clenched. I was like, something must have happened. And, and immediately after the service, Danique says to me, Alistair, we can never go to that church again. Why? It seemed pretty nice. They like Russians. And, and, and she said, no, that man was speaking in tongues, and that's wrong, and you shouldn't do it, and we'll never go to a church like that again. I said, all right. And that, that was that for me. I didn't know any better. And, and now, that's one way to respond, right, to the more unusual practices of Christianity. Uh, I... I don't think it's the best way to respond retrospectively, but there's many ways we can respond. For example, first, we can just call it crazy. We can look at what's happening in Acts, and we call it crazy. 
Uh, and if you do, you're in good company. Look at your Bibles in verse 13. Some mocking said they're filled with new wine. What's going on here? Well, their accusers say it's 9 a.m. and they're drunk. That's what's going on. It's pure craziness. Or some liberal scholars even suggest it's a mass hallucination, right? Uh, whatever's happening, it's not rooted in clear thinking or sobriety, so it's either craziness or drunkenness or a mass hallucination of sorts. Okay, uh, another way we can respond, a second way we can respond, is that we just say speaking in tongues is misguided and irrelevant. You know, maybe that happened in that moment then, but any pursuit of it today uh, at best is wishful thinking and at worst is just dangerous manipulation. These things don't happen anymore, and in your mind, you think, you know, people need to dial this stuff down. Uh, you know, religion, that's fine if it's your thing, uh, but don't become weird about it. Don't be pushy about it. You know, uh, keep it dialed down because there is a fine line between being zealous for what it is that you believe in and becoming a fanatic that is dangerous and who knows what you're going to do next. Or the, another way we can respond to events like this in the scriptures is we make it too important. We make it too important. We read a passage like this and we start treating the supernatural gifts as if they're the only thing needed for the Christian life. They're to be a sought above all else, healing tongues, prophecy. That's all God is concerned about. And there's even forms of Christianity out there that say, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you do not have the Spirit of God. You are not saved. I think they're wrong, but maybe we don't even go that far. And maybe deep down you think, if the church, right, if the church could just connect with these gifts a little more, then all of our problems would work out. Then the church would start to grow. And we still treat these things as if they're like the holy grail of arriving in the Christian life. But please hear me, all of these responses miss the mark, just as much as my friend's response missed the mark. Whether we call it crazy, whether we call it misguided and irrelevant, or even if we make it too important, all of these responses miss what's really happening in this passage in Acts. They miss the forest for the trees. So let's pick the text back up then and look at verses 5 through 11. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. That response makes sense. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygra and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, uh, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Okay, so we get a glimpse of why this is so powerful. A bunch of people from around the then-known world suddenly can communicate with one another. They can understand one another. They can talk and hear and com communicate. And sure, uh, the issue of whether miracles happen aside, like if this happens, that's pretty cool. Like that, that's a neat feat, but so what? Now, what's the point of all this? Well, say you were uh, visiting, you're an ancient foreigner visiting uh, Jerusalem, and, and you're just checking out the city and, and seeing the sights. And can you imagine how convenient it would be to go up to someone and say, excuse me, kind sir, could you direct me to the nearest washroom and not have them mistake you for saying, 
excuse me, where is your mother's fedora? Uh, because, you know, fedoras didn't exist then, and they get really freaked out, like, how do you know about the future? You're a witch, and you probably get burned. Like, you, not having that sort of barrier in language would be nice, you know? It'd be nice just to be able to find out where the restroom is in any city you're in without any confusion. Uh, but what's happening in Acts uh, isn't just breaking down language barriers. I mean, that's a part of it. But look at verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. Suddenly, all the nations of the world can hear with clarity about the mighty works of God. That's what's going on. That's the power. Uh, So to understand this, though, we have to go back to Babel. We have to get our tweed jackets, get our banjos, pop in the Mumford and Sons before they became terrible, and go back uh, to Babel in chapter 11 of Genesis. In the scriptures, Babel is the last time that humanity had one common language that united them. And on the surface, it doesn't seem like that bad of a story. Uh, A bunch of people get together and they build a tower. We do that all the time. One moment. (coughs) I'll try not to do that too much. Uh, But the thing about this tower is uh, what's driving them, what's motivating them. This is the problem. Uh, Look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, if you flip to there. Here's why they build the tower. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's make our own city in our own place, with with our own tower. Let's celebrate our own accomplishments. Humanity at Babel wants to make a name for themselves. They want to stand on their own two legs. But in doing so, they're actually rejecting God. You might be wondering, well, how? Remember, when God created humanity, we're told in Genesis 1 that he blessed them. What did he say? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But here, humanity gathered building a tower. Their motivation is to avoid being dispersed around the world. They're avoiding their creational uh, mandate. And we shouldn't miss another haunting echo. They say, let us build for ourselves a tower. Uh, We should hear the creation narrative again. When God created humanity in his image, he said, let us make them in our own image. The people of Babel, in a very real way, are trying to play God. And so they construct a tower. And the tower they build uh, says a lot about what's actually informing them and more about their motivations. Uh, In the... Last century, there was a writer and mythologist, Joseph Campbell, very interesting guy. He he wrote this. You can tell what's informing a society by what the tallest building is. When you approach a medieval town, the cathedral is the tallest thing in place. When you approach the 18th century town, it's the political palace that's the tallest thing in place. When you approach uh, Surrey, it's McDonald's. And when you approach uh, a modern city, the tallest places are, you know, office buildings and the centers of economic life. Sorry, Surrey. Uh, What does the Tower of Babel, as humanity's tallest building at that time, their attempt to reach the heavens, what does it tell us about what's actually informing their society? Well, we see the invention of humanism. The people of Babel are celebrating humanity's goodness and accomplishments without recognizing any dependence or purpose derived from a relationship with God. That's why they build a tower. Uh, That's why they want to celebrate themselves and their own accomplishments. They want life without God. 
<coughs> and this impulse within us hasn't changed much. Babel lays the ground for our own towers. Think about it. What is the tallest tower in Vancouver? Do you know? The Shangri-La, right? That one. Very tall, 60 stories, an architectural feat. It's a beautiful building. What's remarkable, though, is, is the penthouse on the top floor. Uh, it, is, it was just listed for $15 million. It has everything. An unhindered 360-degree view of the city. Uh, space, which is an, you know, a huge thing in Vancouver, but a lot of space. 4,300 square feet, two floors, three bedrooms, five bathrooms, a pool with a guest house, because you know you need a guest house on the top of the 60th floor. And my favorite part, trees. Like they put their own trees on the 60th floor of a building just because they can. This is, this is a phenomenal thing. And, and they even have like a personal elevator that they can drive into and it takes them all the way to their floor. How convenient is that? <laughs> this is, if someone really wants that feature. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's phenomenal, though. Like, this is luxury, this is opulence, this is decadence, and it's wealth. Um, and this is at the center of our city. This is the tallest building of our city. This is what looks down at us. And so what does it tell us about what's informing our own city? It's indulgence. It's enjoyment. It's living for ourselves. Arriving in our city means being able to enjoy the very best of the best whether it's having the right home or enough time to enjoy the mountains and the oceans and all your leisurely activities, or being able to live whatever it is you call the ideal life. Everything we do and strive after is often to build and accomplish a life of luxury for ourselves. However we may define it may vary. It might be the Shangri-La. It might simply just be a standard of living that you're happy with. But either way, there's a sense of luxury that's driving it. And so despite the several thousand years that separate us. Vancouver is not all that much different than Babel. We're a city trying to celebrate humanity's goodness and accomplishments without God, a city that wants to enjoy the benefits of its accomplishments too. But I'm sure for many of us here, um, we look at Babel and it seems more like an ideal, not a failure. We love our humanism. We really do believe that if we work together, we can fix everything. We can build up solutions and change and be a, a part of making a better world. And that part of humanity, we would say, is worth celebrating. But how does God respond to Babel? How does God respond to the invention of humanism? Genesis 11, verse 7. Here's what God says. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. God breaks the project up. He introduces multiple languages. He disperses everyone all over the earth. Is this because God is threatened by what humanity can accomplish on their own? Is God just deeply insecure about humanity's strength? Goodness, no, that's not what's going on here. As Richard Mao says, when God breaks something, it's not like breaking a vase. It's more like breaking a horse. When God comes and does something that is slightly confusing and when God even brings judgment upon people, it's always because a better purpose has been missed. God knows that if the people of Babel continue in their ways, it will slowly and surely dehumanize them and destroy them. Take our city's indulgent attitude, for example. 
We seek out the very best. We try to maximize our enjoyment. We strive to carve out our piece of the pie. How's that working out for us? We've created a city that people study because of its staggering loneliness and isolation. We've created a housing market that is completely unaffordable and is polarizing the classes. And for those of us who've actually been able to grab a piece of the vision that our city offers and we get to live it out, let me ask you, how's that going for you? And you might say to me, actually, it's going really well. It's really nice. Thank you. But what if I did that pastoral thing where I held the eye contact a little longer? I said, how's that really going for you? (laughs) It really works. Uh, More often than not, here's what I hear from people. Okay, let me tell you. I have everything I need. All my bills are paid. I'm doing all right. I live a pretty good life. But I feel like I shouldn't feel this way, but I'm bored. I'm discontent. I'm tired of what I do have. And and it was fulfilling at first, but then I get over it, and so I try something else, and it's fine at first, but then I get over it, and, and I'm just sick of that cycle. I'm sick of having everything, but still feeling empty and lonely and isolated inside. I have purpose, don't get me wrong, but I need a bigger purpose. That's the irony of luxury. You have so much, more than you could ever need, but you're never satisfied. And when these feelings of discontentment creep up, what do we do? We push them down. We settle for saying, ah, I'm good. We tell ourselves, I shouldn't feel this way. And so we pretend, we hide uh, because we feel shame. We're ashamed to admit that everything we've sought, everything we've built our life around, it doesn't work, it doesn't fulfill, it's fleeting, and we want more, but we have no idea what it is, and so we pretend like everything's fine. And in the midst of it, we might try to celebrate our own goodness and what we think is our inherent goodness, but deep down, we can't deny that we're not even able to put a dent in the most basic human problems. Hunger still exists. Not everyone has sheltered. There is still no peace among the nations. And this has existed for all of humanity's recorded history. So don't buy into the myth that progress is making it better. It's only making it better for a select few, most of us in this room. But the rest of the world, these are still very real issues, and they're still very real issues in our presence today. And so this discontentment, this unfulfilled life, this inept, uh, you know, ineptness to correct the world's problems, these things are a glimpse of the outcome of the fall. We can't fix what's happened. We can't fix the world now that our relationship with God has been severed. We've sought a life without God, and guess what? We've achieved it. This is it. This is why God thwarts our plans when we try to construct our lives solely around ourselves. That's what he's doing in Babel. And yet in thwarting humanity's plans, God also fulfills his blessing for them. It's really interesting. You see, what's classically called the fall, you know, Adam and Eve eating that forbidden fruit in the garden and and breaking the relationship with God, um, that's just like the start of the explanation of the fall. The climax of the fall in Genesis is chapter 11. It's Babel. You know, it's it's because... um, Humanity is now rejecting themselves. They're rejecting why they were made. That's how bad the fall is. But God will not let the fall get in the way of his intention to bless. And so God disperses the people of Babel all over the world. But remember, that was his blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So in his grace, he is helping them still live out his creational purposes for them, even though they've rejected him. 
So Babel tells us that even when humanity has reached the peak of their corruption, when they're headed towards their own demise without any clue, God prevents them from succumbing to their self-destruction. He steps in and doesn't allow humanity to be united over a false purpose and a truncated sense of self that will never deliver, that will never satisfy, that will never complete us. What's interesting, though, is immediately after Babel is Genesis chapter 12, the chapter of promise, the chapter that tells us that God isn't going to leave things this way, that God isn't always going to have to work around us to bring his purposes to completion in the world, that God will actually work with us and one day in and through us. And so God calls Abraham. We know this story. And he says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're going to have an offspring, and in him all the nations will be blessed, and those who uh, don't honor him will be cursed. So stepping back, because we've talked about Babel for quite a while now. Why all this talk about Babel? Why this brief mentioning of Abraham? Look again at Acts chapter 2, verse 11. On the day of Pentecost, the people said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We can't totally make sense of Pentecost if we don't make sense of Babel. The day of Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. At Babel, God came down and thwarted humanity's plans. He stopped us from being utterly ruined by the fall, and yet it came with costs. We were fractured. Unity became beyond our reach. But we also can't make sense of Pentecost without making sense of God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. St. Paul says in, in Galatians, Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. In Jesus, the nations will be blessed. And so when God sent his son down from heaven, again, he stopped us from being utterly ruined by the fall. But this time he did it in an ultimate way. Jesus gave his life to die for us, to heal us, to forgive us, to remove sin and death, which would have eternally separated us from God. He resurrected to show us eternal life. And then he ascended and he returned to heaven. And the big question is why? So that the Spirit would come. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes down and the church is born. God no longer has to work around us to accomplish his plans like in Babel. His plans have been accomplished. He has brought his son into the world. The cross has undone the consequences of the fall. Death is defeated. Sin is powerless and nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's what's been accomplished. But Pentecost is also a big deal because God now dwells in us. He doesn't just work around us to see his will come to uh, fruition. He doesn't just prevent us from self-destruction by, you know, building boundaries around us. He enters into our lives. He dwells within us. He works his purposes and desires in and through us. And he meets us then in our brokenness, in our frailty, in our weakness, in our shame. He meets us in our dissatisfaction with life or our boredom or our depression. And he meets us there. He dwells with us there and he brings wholeness and healing and hope and purpose. But Pentecost also shows us that the barriers are removed. God is no longer just the God of Israel. In fact, he's never just been the God of Israel. He's always been the God of the nations, and Jesus has made salvation available for all the nations. And finally, all the nations can be truly unified. And what's beautiful is in the gospel we see, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, rich or poor, Chinese or Indian or white, Jesus creates a new identity for humanity we're sharing the 
the identity of being children of God. And we're unified in Christ and his saving work alone. You see, the world, it's not going to be unified by our accomplishments, by our humanism, or by our goodness. It's not going to be unified by whatever we put at the center of our city, whatever the tallest building may be. It's only going to be unified through Christ. And only then will we find that our souls are satisfied. Now, I understand. It's easy to get caught up in Acts here, in the spiritual gifts. I'm sure some of you are thinking, you haven't even touched on the man. Like, what a letdown. I, I, let, me, let me say this. The whole speaking in tongues stuff. It's a good and fine gift that people in this congregation express. Good. Keep doing it. Um, but if we make this passage about the speaking in tongues, we've totally missed it. This passage is about the world being healed and united through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gifts are simply an overflow of being unified with God. They're an overflow of God being available and working in and through people so that he might be made known for the sake of the world, so that the nations might know his son through the power of his spirit. And God's people, they're caught up in the great privilege of making Jesus known, the great privilege of exalting them as our tower, our greatest treasure, our greatest reward, the center of our lives that defines everything. He in Christ, like, and the church has the privilege of exalting him, being the person in, in whom we live and move and have our being. He defines the way we breathe, the way we laugh, the way we enjoy, the way we weep and suffer and mourn and, and go through life together. And the mysterious thing is he's found right here in the church. In this ragtag bunch of people, this is where Christ is found. And yet despite all of that beauty, all of that power, miraculous things happening in our midst. People still say, this looks too foreign. They still say, you're drunk. You don't know what you're talking about. But I think we respond this way. Because Pentecost confuses our humanism. We think we should live solely for ourselves, but Pentecost says, no, you live for God. We think humanity in and of itself should be celebrated for its goodness, but Pentecost says, no, celebrate Christ's goodness. We think somehow we can fix the world's problems without God, but Pentecost says, no, only Jesus can reconcile the world to God. And this confuses us because it's these things that we've settled for. We've settled for a life that's only based on what we can see and observe, the ordinary and the natural, not the extraordinary and the supernatural. But because of Pentecost, because of God's Spirit coming down to dwell in us, Nothing about the here and now is ordinary. You need to get that. Nothing about the here and now is ordinary. God's spirit is available in abundance. God can be found and experienced here and now because of Pentecost. If Pentecost did not happen, the church is just a social club. And let's be honest, there's way more fascinating social clubs that offer you food on top of it. Uh, but... If Pentecost did happen, and we believe it did, then the church truly is the body of Christ. Jesus really is present in our midst. And his power really is available to unify us and heal us and overcome barriers and divisions and even available to transform our own city and the world. The challenging part, though, is that Pentecost has to be responded to. 
And we'll respond to it in a variety of ways. But Peter stands up on the day in Pentecost. He speaks to the people who are observing this, who are skeptical, who are doubting whether it's really true. And here's what he says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Jesus is available to you right now. He is calling. His spirit is present. The question is, how are you going to respond?